corporations fight secure work and better pay, Joyce leaves Qantas burning, economic growth, and good news about solar glass. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me here live while Germanicus chews on himself, that's the noise you're hearing in the background, is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, my wife and your friend Van Badham. How are you Van? I'm pretty good, pretty good. It's been a busy, busy week in Australian politics. Of yes. course, Parliament is sitting. And I want to just quickly give a shout out. People might have seen that on, uh, I think it was Monday, uh, possibly Tuesday. Who knows? The days all blend together when you're this busy. There were some people who claimed to be pharmacists, but were probably pharmacy owners, heckling the government over its decision to make 60-day uh prescriptions available, which of course is saving people thousands of dollars in prescription costs. And shout out here to Professionals Australia who wrote to us because we of course have discussed this policy before and pointed out that the Pharmacy Guild is not actually the union for pharmacists, which they're totally right. The Professionals Australia is the union for pharmacists. Because there is a union for everyone. And you can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow to join that your union, whatever it might be, including Professionals Australia, if you are indeed a pharmacist. The Pharmacy Guild is actually the union for the bosses, the owners of pharmacies. So the kind of scenes we saw where there was heckling and carry on in the galleries uh, was actually by pharmacy owners rather than pharmacists. And of course- They're sneaky, aren't they? they, they are they sneaky? They dress it up. They try and make it look like, you know, the, the friendly face of the pharmacy. You go in, you get your blood pressure medication or your antidepressants or your diabetes medication or whatever it might be that you get is going to be disadvantaged by this, but it's actually the pharmacy owners who are up in arms, literally, in the uh, gallery of the parliament. And I just wanted to make that point because uh, Professionals Australia wrote to us to say, look, actually, we've got members here who totally support the government's position uh, and who, frankly, are being forced into a position by the owners of pharmacies into handing out what they think is misinformation. So a shout out to all the brave pharmacists who are standing up to those owners and standing up for their communities to get cheaper, more accessible medication. Yeah, and I, I want to point out a wonderful piece of political sleight of hand that was sent to us by another fan of the show, a photograph of Susan Lay. Yeah. Susan, who I believe is Deputy Leader of the Liberal yeah, Party. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Dear God. And a photograph of her in the border mail with a lot of people in white coats <laughs> didn't disclose uh, that she was actually with the president of the Albury branch of the Liberal Party, was one of the people in that photo, um, a gentleman who runs um, around five pharmacies as a pharmacy owner in the region. Not disclosed. Yeah. That's interesting Susan, does your pre-selection depend? Oh, yes, it does. Your pre-selection for that very safe seat does depend on the members and how interesting that that wasn't mentioned in uh, that photograph of you looking very sulky in the border mail. Yeah, look, media disclosure I think is a really uh, important thing and, of course, we are – an independent uh, outlet. You can. We don't have ads in our thing. The only ad that we have is to get you to join your union. Uh, we've been saying it for a long time. We'll continue to say it. Since we were born. And before that, our parents said it. <laughs> Indeed. And before them, our grandparents said it. We're pretty union in this house. That's right. And I want to make a full disclosure. I am not a member of the Labor Party. I was never a member of the Greens. I have not sought pre-selection. My interests are not in holding representative office. Twitter is full of some very strange people who invent mm, colourful narratives about people who attract their attention. And while I'm flattered and delighted to be the subject of this extraordinary internet mythos. Anybody who wants to tell you I am seeking a political career, that I am an active member of a political party, or indeed have ever been an active member of a political party, did join the Labor Club in a week at university and and let my membership lapse, uh, 
I, I, they are lying. <laughs> lying. I, I do find it really funny. Uh, for those of you who have been told that apparently my antipathy towards the Greens is because I was denied uh, the job of being a photocopy assistant to Adam Band, this is also part of this fanciful ethos. While I have known Adam for many years from student politics, just like I knew Andrew Giles and former Liberal Senator Scott Ryan and Terry Butler and many, many other colourful personalities, that's as far as it goes. Indeed. And of course, my political affiliations are well known and you can find them just about anywhere. I'm a union member. I'm a proud member of the ALP uh, and uh, I am a life member of the Deakin University Student Association, having served two terms as president. Mm. I don't know what else I'm a member of. I don't think there's much else. But anyway, if a lot you want, of unions, I'm a member of two. There you go. There's a lot of union memberships in this house. Speaking of union memberships and why it's so important to join, right now in the parliament, there is a move to give workers more rights, more secure work, and better pay. Oh, and close some loopholes, Ben. That's right. Because, of course, Van, as you and I have discussed on this show many, many times, corporations in this country have been exploiting loopholes to reduce the pay of workers, to reduce the power of workers to get better pay, and, of course, to fatten their bottom lines. Now, this is delivering on the election promise of same job, same pay, the election promise of regulating the gig economy and of giving casual workers more power in the workplace and, of course, the general promise of lifting wages. So, of course, this has elicited a massive multi-million dollar campaign from the Business Council of Australia, Minerals Australia, uh, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, uh, the Australian Industry Group, and the Master Builders. And you might think to yourself, well, why would they spend millions of dollars stopping reforms of the of the gig economy? I know, I know, it's greed, isn't it? It's absolutely greed. It's absolutely <laughs> greed. So, so here's here's what's being proposed. Oh, it's so unattractive. They're going to Labor wants to in government. Tony Burke has introduced this bill that will make deliberate wage theft a crime. So, if the boss deliberately steals from you, that's a crime, right? Should be a crime. It's a crime in Victoria and Queensland now. Crime across the country. It'll give casuals the option of becoming permanent. The business lobbyists are saying this will force casuals to be permanent and force businesses to sack casuals. That's not true. That's a scare campaign. It will close the loophole in labour hire that allows companies like BHP and Qantas to pretend that they're not really the employers of their own staff. In, even when they fully own the labour hire company that they're getting the workers from, which BHP has been doing. Qantas. That's right. 28 companies. labour hire. So apparently Qantas has has 28 labour hire companies that it uses and hasn't directly employed uh, a flight attendant since 2008. Wow, Ben, that sounds like a scam. Yeah, billions of dollars. Sounds really like a scam. It's also going to give gig workers minimum standards and stop the erosion and undercutting of minimum wages by basically dodgy platform providers. So I hate dodgy platform providers. Well, a long time ago, Australia decided we would be a country where there were minimum standards of pay, minimum conditions that you couldn't fall below. Along comes Uber and along comes gig platforms and suddenly we're supposed to pretend that those minimum standards don't apply just because you use a piece of technology. And there's a real contest here, right, because there are some uh, – there are some in the transport sector who use these platforms who are saying, yeah, okay, if we're going to have minimum standards, as long as it applies to everyone, it's fine. There are some in the care economy, you know, we've talked about higher up before, who is employing people directly. There's nothing that says you can't use the technology and employ people. But then you've got others like Mabel, for example, who are screaming blue murder. When Tony Burke gave his speech on Thursday last week, they came out with these just incredible statements. They've run a scare campaign, sending out emails to people on the NDIS, trying to get them to campaign for them. I mean, it's quite incredible that a NDIS and aged care provider is in bed with the Minerals Council of Australia and the master builders, two of the most uh, militant bosses lobbyists in the country, because they don't want to have minimum standards. 
Right? Yeah, I want everybody to just consider what that means. It's like we used to say about minimum wage. Anybody who is arguing against minimum wage is arguing that they would pay you nothing if they could get away with it. And the idea that you would campaign against minimum standards, minimum standards apply to everybody. That actually levels the playing field. This is Capitalists love talking about a level playing field and they love talking about equal market access and they love the idea that, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's a free market and everybody can participate equally. But when you do actually anything to go, all right, we're going to level the playing field for business. So businesses actually have to compete on fair terms. Oh, acid is raining from the sky, Ben. Dragons are appearing <laughs> under the beds. Quick, quick, the witches are curdling the milk yield. Well, it's it's interesting because, of course, Peter Dutton uh, and Michaela Cash uh, you know, the, the really the mouth, mouthpieces of the bosses have come out in support of the campaign against these changes in, in favour of the loopholes. Tony Burke has challenged them to say, if you're against this, you have to defend the loopholes. And here's how Peter Dutton has decided to defend the loopholes. He addressed a Minerals Council meeting. Uh, this has happened today, uh, where he said, the mining sector has found itself increasingly in the crosshairs of environmental extremists and far-left politicians. Far-left politicians. Advocating for socialist-style wealth redistribution. Such critics, of course, conveniently ignore your clean operations practices and carbon reduction efforts. And for such critics, your tax contributions will never be enough. Dutton said these left-wing messages gained traction because they were infrequently challenged. Infrequently challenged by the mining lobby, by Liberal Party politicians, by every cooker on the internet, infrequently challenged. By the Murdoch media, by the billionaire and corporate-owned media. He wants parents to tell them... He wants parents to tell children and their school that their schools and cities are built, quote, thanks to the contributions of the mining sector. What a whack job. I'm sorry. <laughs> like he I can't imagine he's ever going to be prime minister because fundamentally if you want to lead this country, if you want to assemble a democratic majority, you have to live in the reality that the democratic majority share. And I don't think anybody thinks, I do not think any rational person believes that there is some kind of mass movement of socialist extremism taking place in this country. Here's a test for anyone who tells you that this country is run by communists. Are the shops open? <laughs> Are the shops open? Can you get a McDonald's drive-thru? Because yeah. let me tell you something, if you can get McDonald's drive-thru, there's no communism. That's not a thing. I mean, this is just banana land, isn't it? It, it is banana land. And it also... Oh, he's got some deep fears, Peter Dutton, doesn't he? There are. There is no basis in reality for this. Let's, let's look at some facts and some numbers because you know what I always find interesting? There was a time when conservatives used to go, well, we have to look at the facts and the numbers. <laughs> they don't do that anymore. It's funnily enough, they don't do that anymore. Yeah, the facts and the numbers don't play in their favour. They don't play in their no. favour. So now it's all about, you know, far left socialists oh, not yeah. wanting to build schools or something. I don't know. It's hard to understand. But the facts and the numbers are these. So compared to 2019, wages are 2% lower than they were in 2019, right? Overall, this is the overall. This is this is what you know, sort of the the uh, average cost of wages, if you like. The while profits are up eight percent compared to 2019. Wow! So I wonder if there's a relationship between those two figures. What do you reckon, Ben? Well, not only is there a relationship, this bill will actively change the nature of that relationship. The department has said that over the next decade, and this was published in the Murdoch media as a scare campaign point, I have to say, which boggles my mind, right? Firstly, most people won't read The Australian, so <laughs> that's fine. Probably as many people will hear this for the first time yeah, on our podcast. Yeah, space aliens. They never miss a copy. <laughs> but but the, the combined amount over a decade that this policy will quote-unquote cost, that is move into the pockets of workers is $9 billion. $4 billion of that will go to workers in the gig economy. Now, let's think about what that really means. 
What that really means is that if we leave things the status quo, $9 billion that should go to workers, because don't forget, all this bill does is mean that everybody gets the minimum agreed pay rate, whether it's the minimum wage or whether it's an award wage or whether it's an EBA rate. But Ben, what about you know, monopolist advantage. Well, apparently it's worth $9 billion <laughs> over the next decade. So when, when I mean, I going- sort of understand why they're fighting it because that's the logic of capitalism. Like people have got to stop thinking capitalism is about anything apart from maximising shareholder value. That's it. That's all that it's about, right? It's not noble. It's not about tearing down barriers or freedom or liberty. It is literally just about, it's very clear in American gods when they go to meet the god of money, he doesn't even look up from his cash register, his little calculator. Like It is just about maximising return to shareholders. Absolutely. And that, when you think of it like that, the idea, because people go, but why would they spend all this money if it wasn't bad for, for Australia? Because it's an investment. These people are investors. They are corporate executives. They understand return on investment. For every dollar they spend on advertising, they're expecting to save $100 in that wage bill, whatever it might be. That's why they're doing it. It's got nothing to do with the national interest. And, you know, I think if I was running the environment movement, they'd complain, they'd campaign, complain very differently. They would. They would campaign very differently. Right, this is I've written about this before, and I just want to be very, very clear to environmentalists. Do you know how you win? And I said this about Adani, make the business case that the mine will cost more than it makes back. You yeah. know, slap them with all of the restrictions and on business as possible. This is what I find so funny about Peter Dutton. So on the on the one hand, he's going, oh, these environmental extremists. I'm like, well, they're not actually obstructing anything, are they? There's complaining. Mm. Of course there are. There mm. is. Mm. But, you know, the obstruction to business as usual is not actually happening. Mm. You know, mm. a challenge that actually gets capitalist enterprises where it hurts, that's not the framework of how we're doing environmentalism. Environmentalists, of which I consider myself one, of course, mm. anyone who listens to this show, seem to think that there's like a fair, fairness bureaucracy who are going to turn up and do things because they're moral and good and humanity is under threat. That's not how this system works. Somebody who is making a decision to steal wages from workers and then run a scare campaign about how complaining about being underpaid is actually going to tank the economy while they're off to their yacht club, like that person is not a person who's amenable to a moral argument. And the, and the forces of light are not going to turn up and go, oh, hey, Rupert, you're being really unfair, man. Like that's it's not a Will Ferrell movie, everybody. There is no happy ending here. There is just perpetual struggle. And you know, to that point, Van, Sally McManus, the leader of the trade union movement in Australia, has said Praise be upon her name. Has said, and I quote, every single time workers ask for a pay rise, always the argument is the same. That it's going to cause prices to go up, it's going to wreck the economy. And that's all turned out not to be true. However, can we ever say as Australians that it's not right for workers to be paid at least the minimum wage? That's what we agree is the minimum you need. In fact, the trade union movement thinks that minimum wage is too low. Laws that are about making sure people get that absolute bare minimum are modest, fair changes. So, of course, the union movement is campaigning on this. The union movement's also not particularly happy that small business uh, has been carved out from some of the labour hire changes because there have been carve-outs for small business around the use of labour hire. Um, Look, Van, one of the other points that's kind of in amongst this kind of scare campaign from business and and workers combining in their unions to to win uh, these changes, one of the things that's been a little bit lost in the noise is that the Fair Work Act will change the definition of employee, which sounds a bit dry and probably is a bit dry. But this is important because of the way it gets defined in the courts. So for a long time, the courts would look at the work that you did and make a determination about whether you were objectively an employee subject to the control of a boss or a contractor, i.e. you could run your own business. There were some cases that happened in 2022, 2021 that changed that. And the High Court at the time decided that they would only determine who was an employee based on the paperwork that had been signed. So it took out the power imbalance issue, which in this country we've understood for a very long time that bosses 
have more power than workers. And you've got to take that into account. What this particular change would do is re-establish the legal framework that means courts have to consider the what actually happens, the reality on the ground no way. to determine whether or not someone was an employee in actuality as opposed to what it says on the piece of paper. Now, I'm going to ask Ben to share a great link I came across the other day that talked about this framework in the simplest terms. It's it's a piece from one of my favourite magazines, which is Current Affairs. It's a progressive American magazine and it's great. And it talked about how one of the discursive tricks that the right use, the free market right, as mm-hmm. opposed to the completely wackadoo, like kill everybody right, which unfortunately we're dealing with more and more, <laughs> yeah. um, is comparing everything, like creating these sort of contextless situations and pushing narratives, particularly on young children, that capitalism is just like owning a lemonade stand and how, you know, if your friend refused to buy things from your lemonade stand just because they didn't like you, you know, and everything gets reduced to this sort of like nursery school level Mm. analogies that absolutely fail to deal with the reality that we're talking about massive corporations, billions of dollars versus people like you and me who are turning up to work in order to get paid to feed their families and themselves. And I'm going to make sure Ben shares that link because it was a it was a critique of a series of cartoons made by free market loons in America for children and that use these sort of analogies mm. all the time. And it's such a simple way to going power dynamics are an actual thing like control of resources, material resources that are on one side and not the other are a thing. And it's just so hilarious. Let's just call back to Peter Dutton going, oh, these extreme socialist views are really challenged when we're currently watching the business lobby mobilise their money, their influence, their power and their connection to, I mean, I know this is crazy, the Liberal Party, in order to smash Workers. And of course, it's also important to remember that some of the billionaire. So unchallenged. Some of the billionaire and corporate owned media interests are directly aligned to mining. So if you take Seven West Media, for example, the owners of Seven, or the majority owners of Seven West Media, the Stokes family, also own a significant interest in a mining railroad that transports what's dug out of the ground and shipped to a port in order to be shipped overseas, it would be incredibly surprising to find much in Seven West Media that was supportive of the government's position, given that those interests are directly impacted by this. And when I say directly impacted by this, i.e., the Stokes family will have to share some of their profits, very, very profitable organisation, with the workers who do the work. Nobody here... Nobody anywhere that I can see is actually putting forward any real tangible examples of how this will stop economic growth, make people unemployed. It's just the rhetoric. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no data. I mean, and this is the thing too. Let's look at everybody in an executive role in any of these corporations, Mm. right? Let's look look at the C-suite. Let's look at anyone with that. They are not suffering. No. They're not. These are people who are getting paid bonuses. So they sign on to kind of extraordinary salaries. Ben, what's a what's a young executive, like a junior executive getting paid at an ASX five hundred? Well, I mean, if you're if you're talking about a sort of ASX two hundred, you sorry, two hundred. You're you're pushing seven figures when you're in the C-suite. There's no question about that. You'll be you'll be in the millions, uh, low millions maybe. You might be the high. Oh, low millions. You might be the high. Imagine six. only being paid in the low millions. Yeah. I mean, what would you say? Yeah. At- <laughs> you might be in the high six figures, but you might then also have a bonus which pushes you into seven figures, and that's pretty standard. Then you'll have, of course, your CEOs, your chief financial officers. I mean, there are CEOs in this country getting paid in the tens of millions. Oh, absolutely. That's absolutely true. Does that look like suffering? No, not at all. Does that look like a cost of living crisis? Well, it adds to the cost of living crisis. Well, it does because it blows out, you know, prices for everybody else because those kind of ridiculous salaries are maintained by, oh, 
well, exploiting everybody else who works there. And I'm sorry, I've met some executives in my time working in hospitality. Let me tell you, you meet all kinds of disreputable people. And I'm, this, in unfortunately, in my experience includes venture capitalists. And how did you become a socialist? Well, that's a story that you can probably infer. And I've got to say, I haven't met anyone who's so remarkable at that particular level of management that justifies the investment they get. You set up a corporation, sure. You're in profit-making business, sure. But- oh, there's no question about this. And the, the multiplier between uh, what the average worker in a company gets and the CEO gets- Is sickening? Has gone from, you know, 12 times to 58 times to now hundreds of times more. And in, in the US, I think it's in the thousands of times more. Uh, and, and this kind of trend has been going on for a long time. What this bill does is it says, it doesn't say you can't earn more money. You can't be paid more money. This is another thing that the ads, by the way, the scare campaign is saying is that, oh, people will have to get paid the same regardless of experience. That's not true. And credit to The Guardian. We have an awards system. Credit to The Guardian who actually came out and put a note on Peter Dutton's misinformation about that on their live blog that said very clearly, Peter Dutton is incorrect on this. Uh, if you are, if you are, have different experiences, you'll be paid according to the EBA, which delineates between experiences, right? So there's nothing that stops a company paying workers more. What stops a company paying workers more is its desire to pay its executives more and to pay out its shareholders more dividends. That's what stops them from paying people more. If the business lobby was so concerned about wanting to pay people more, they could just go and pay people more. This whole scare campaign is a nonsense. It's designed to obfuscate the fact that, as you say, the C-suite, the executives, that corporate that corporate layer is just constantly creaming money that should be going into workers' pockets. I mean, we're going to talk about Qatar Airways because we're going to talk about Qantas today. You know, one of the things that I find interesting about Qatar is their gas, for example, is they are the second largest supplier of gas in the world. We're now the first. And yet they make something like 30 times the amount of taxation revenue on their gas than we do on ours. So this whole concept, right, these these ideas that the Business Council put out that, oh, if you tax things or if you make us pay people properly or whatever it might be, business will collapse and fall apart. It's just not true. It's not real, right? It doesn't actually come to pass. What actually comes to pass is business adjusts. The one thing that capitalism is actually really good at is adjusting to whatever reality it's in in order to make money. Oh, of course. So if you put in laws that, that make sure workers get a fair deal, that make sure taxpayers get a fair deal, capitalism will find a way to operate. It's found a way to operate in Norway. It's found a way to operate in Qatar. It's found a way to operate in the United States. Incredibly different and diverse socio-economic political arrangements, but it still operates. So the Business Council and all of those mining idiots, they're just greedy. They just want that $9 billion to come out of the pockets of working people and go into their pockets in the form of bonuses, dividends, and high salaries. To spend on garbage, to spend on literal garbage. Yep, luxury. And I can say this is somebody who worked in hospitality. There's absolutely no difference between the $20 wine and the $200 (laughs) wine and the $2,000 wine. Oh, we're going to get people going to write in about that. I can tell you. There really isn't. We're going to get people going. Train sommelier in the corner. I can sell you anything. If it's wine, I can sell it to you and convince you it's perfume. We're going to have to move on because we've got a lot more to cover. But just very quickly before we do, I want to point out that people need to get involved in this because th- this is not law yet. And of course, the, the the millionaires and the billionaires and their corporate mouthpieces are mobilizing on this. They're running ads and the, they're investing in it. Yep. The, they are. They are Nine billion dollars on the line. So independent Senator David Pocock and the Jackie Lambie Network Senators Jackie Lambie and Tammy Tyrrell have not indicated their support yet for the IR reforms. Uh, the Lambie Network uh, Senators uh, 
saying that they want more time to consider the bill and to meet with impacted stakeholders. If you're a working person, you are an impacted stakeholder. If you're from Tasmania and you're listening to this show, call Jackie and Tammy's offices now. Get onto the Australian Union's website. There'll be actions and activities you can undertake there as well about sending emails, petitions. Like these are $9 billion of money that should go to workers is on the line. This is a real and tangible benefit to working people. And a tangible benefit to small business because if $9 billion comes back into the hands of workers, where do they spend it? They spend it in their local communities. And, of course, Adam Bant has not as yet declared their uh, Greens position so if you are a Green supporter who happens to listen to this show, welcome. We hope that uh, that green will go a slightly sh- a darker shade of red. But nonetheless, they are saying that they want a right to disconnect in the final provisions of the bill. Yeah, not, not good enough. Work harder. Yeah, it's not the it's not the core of the bill. I don't think anybody's saying we're not that a small not little liberal that. party, but we do act like one. So if you are a Green supporter or you know someone who's a Green supporter, get them. They need to be on board with this. This cannot be one of those things where they play brinksmanship because it's $9 billion, $4 billion of which, by the way, goes into the pockets of gig economy workers, people who are delivering food, who are caring for our elders, who are caring for people with disability. Not $4 billion is being ripped out of their pockets. That, how could you not support this? Look, Van, we need to move on because... Alan Joyce has moved on. He's gone. He's out the door of Qantas. But his name will live in the language forever (laughs) because whenever my Qantas flight is delayed or cancelled or my luggage goes missing, I will know I have been joiced. And joist is a really good term for the state of Qantas. So Vanessa Hudson officially started today, today being the 6th of September, Wednesday, the 6th of September, episode 149 of the week on Wednesday, same day that Vanessa Hudson started as Managing Director and Group CEO of Qantas. Now, Joyce has walked away with what is anticipated to be a $24 million final pay packet. This is just, this is an extraordinary story. The fall of Qantas. Okay, let's just, a $24 million pay packet. But what we really should do is we should really stop paying workers as much as we do because it's the Alan Joyce's who just bring like such incredible value to the Australian experience who should be remunerated, well, as much as we can. In fact, we should exploit workers in order to ensure that Alan takes home that kind of pay packet. Well, I want to, the first point I want to make about Qantas is that it's just the dog looks so depressed. (laughs) Yeah. Is that it is still fighting against a federal court ruling that it unlawfully sacked 1700, uh, uh, baggage handlers. Uh, and that has not, that has not yet been resolved. Now there are lots of terrible things we're going to talk about with Qantas, that, that has been an ongoing story and an ongoing problem for 1,700 families in this country. Uh, and, and Qantas has no intention, no intention of changing it. Labor Senator Tony Sheldon, who, of course, we know has been a longtime critic of Qantas. Uh, Absolutely superlative trade unionist. He is indeed. Has said, and I quote, uh, has said that the uh, Alan Joyce's legacy is, and I quote, a workforce split across 38 companies and a brand now synonymous with low pay, insecure work, illegal sackings and consumer ripoffs. The Qantas board cannot hide behind Joyce's resignation. The board has backed Joyce's behaviour at every step and must be held equally accountable for the disgraceful state of the company. Now, you and I have talked about Qantas many times before. The staff who work there are phenomenal people working under extraordinary circumstances with a management that's hostile to almost everything those staff try and achieve. The, the revelations in the last couple of weeks, in addition to the poor treatment of the staff, have included some pretty disgraceful treatment of the Australian public. So the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has alleged that Qantas engaged in false misleading of deceptive conduct in advertising and selling flights for more than 8,000 flights, more than 8,000 flights 
that it had already cancelled in its system and in some cases taking up to 48 days to notify customers that their flight had been cancelled. The ACCC is asking for more than $250 million in fines to be paid. This comes at the same time Qantas is facing a $1 billion class action lawsuit over its failure to refund flights cancelled during the pandemic, that it essentially used that $1 billion as an interest-free loan, comes on top of the $2.7 billion that it was given by the Morrison government during the pandemic. It, of course, booked a $2.4 billion profit before all of this came out, even though the ACCC investigation was underway in June. So this has been going on for a while, by the way. That During May to July of 2022, Qantas cancelled 15,000 of its 66,000 domestic flights. Almost one in four flights uh, were cancelled by Qantas and that essentially it's been involved in what's called slot hoarding, where it pretends there's going to be a flight so it doesn't lose the slot at the airport because, of course, the airports are a different company to the airlines. It's important to remember that. That meant that just under one in 10 flights uh, to Melbourne and Canberra uh, are cancelled on average. It's absolutely appalling. I mean, it's been appalling for a long time. I think part of the problem that we have is that not everybody uses Qantas. Not all Australian workers are popping yeah. all over the country and, like, recognising that I think is really important. We have to, and, you know, the inconvenience of middle-class people doing middle-class jobs and having to fly to them I, d- I don't think is the greatest social concern no. of our time, as much as it annoys me when I get joist around. Yeah. But we are talking about a significant employer in the economy that is supposed to exist to be accessible to all Australians. So in this very big company, uh, company, in this very big country, things can run smoothly. And Qantas gets favour after favour after favour from government. And I'm speaking specifically Mm. about Scott Morrison just giving Qantas $2 billion, just have $2 billion. $2.7 billion. Oh, sorry, $2.7 billion. And and the point I want to make about that, Van, is that Alan Joyce, in one of his exit interviews, you know, media interviews, um, was talking about how good it was that Qantas was returning the profitability because it meant that they paid corporate tax again, as they have in the past, and this would be good for the tax part. The ABC looked into that a little bit because, you know, public records are there. During Alan Joyce's 15-year reign in Qantas, at Qantas, they haven't paid any tax. In fact, it has received more money back from the tax office than it has paid. So the airline shelled out $2.65 billion over the course of 15 years to the tax man, but that's been absolutely dwarfed by the credits that it's accumulated with the tax office of $2.93 billion. So in effect... And that doesn't count the $2.7 billion of free money either. Does not count the $2.7. Yeah, that so, lovely Christmas present from Scott Morrison. So if you, if you want to add those two numbers together, 2.9 and 2.7, you're talking about $5 billion over 15 years. Right? Darling, you're talking about $5.6 billion. So $5.6 billion over 15 years that he has taken out of the tax system against 2.6 that he's put in. No wonder the board gave him $25 million as a bonus, really, or final pay packet or whatever they're calling it. No wonder. And people are saying- Because they're rolling in cash for no reason. And people are saying, oh, the board should be held to account to this and the board should withhold the bonuses. And I agree with that, by the way. My personal view is that the board should withhold the bonuses. You know, we're talking about- Why do you get a bonus for good work when actually you're just taking free money? Like, that's not actual work. That's not going, oh, my God, you're amazing. Well, because, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think it's important that we remember that not only are there these lawsuits, not only are there these workers who are suing, not only are there the class action lawsuits, the Uh, regulatory lawsuits. Not only are there the 29, was it 29, 28, 29 labour hire companies that Qantas wholly owns, but... Well, they don't wholly own all of them. Oh, sorry, it doesn't wholly own all of them. But it's also the case that 
for the first time has not directly hired a flight attendant since 2008. And for the first time, that's 15 years. And for the first time ever, Qantas has dropped off the list of Australia's most trusted brands (gasps) and is now the 13th most distrusted brand in the economy. It's now more distrusted than Jetstar. It's own. I mean, that's a corporate achievement because Jetstar is terrible. And Jetstar is its own budget version, right? So Jetstar is, by its very nature and definition, supposed to have a worse brand than Qantas because that's how that's structured. That's what what a house of brands is, folks. If you want to look up the marketing term, look up house of brands and it'll tell you why Jetstar should not be more reputable than Qantas. You know, I married you, but I also married your MBA and I, for one, am grateful for that. At the same time, the average age of planes at Qantas has gone up from nine years when Joyce began as CEO to 15 years. So he has literally been running this thing into the ground while milking cash out of the taxpayer as much as he can. That's why the board should deny the bonuses. This idea that, oh, he's getting bonuses because of profitability, I understand that. That is a very basic and simpleton's version of what a board should be doing. What if the government turns off the taps? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? What if there's a popular movement from Australian people going, this is absolutely unacceptable, this is a massive corporation that is present all over the country that most people have a connection to, even if they're not flying all the time, like have a connection because that's the airline. I mean, we know that they're restricting Qatar Airways from operating here. You know, there have been discussions suggesting that perhaps there is some slot hogging, which is an amazing word, I've got to say, going on with Qantas, not Mm, wanting the competition mm. so they can cancel as many flights when they like, whenever they want. I mean, it is disgusting. And if you regulate that space entirely, well, what does Qantas have left? Are they still adaptable or are they so used to just taking free money that they're not really capable of running as an effective capitalist operation? Well, that's a very good question and one that Vanessa Hudson as the new uh, CEO Is the one who's going to be poised to answer. And I'd just like to say thank you to Alan Joyce, like really from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Alan, for demonstrating once again, when a man has made such an absolute tire fire of any kind of enterprise, whether it's a government or whether it's a corporation or a community organisation, and reached a point of no return, taking the money and then giving the unprecedented opportunity to a woman to lead it. Well done. Look, this is... It is going to be an ongoing story. And, of course, you know, we've raised the issue of Qatar Airways. I want to make a couple of points about the Qatar Airways situation. Slot hogging. The Qatar, every government in the world negotiates access to airspace. That's what we do. Everybody does it. Qatar Airways asked for significantly more slots for international flights. And I appreciate that for some people, um, flights, particularly back to, say, India uh, or parts of Southeast Asia, are about visiting family, seeing family, and are considered more of a cost of living issue than, say, you know, the Melbourne Sydney hop as a as a business thing, right? I get that. I understand that. It's important to note that. What Qatar was asking for were international flights. Mm. It's important to note that they were asking for an unprecedented increase as well. And, in fact, they'd asked the last government for such an increase and was not granted that increase either. In fact, the last time Qatar Airways was given a significant increase in its international slots to come into Australia was when there was a different transport minister who happened to be of the name Anthony Albanese. So while there is this attempt to kind of beat up the relationship between Albo and Qantas as the reason why this has happened, and look, I don't know all the ins and outs of that, and I personally don't like Alan Joyce, but as you've said, Van... I mean, it's not like we've met him socially or anything. No, no, but as I've... Yeah, when I say personally... I'm sure I don't like his business practices. I am sure he's very charming. I don't like his business practices. I should be clear. I don't like his business practices. But he he was CEO of a major employer, which is also structurally important to the Australian economy, 
And to regional economies where airports operate. So it makes sense that prime ministers, transport ministers, shadow ministers would have some interaction with the CEO of Qantas, just as they should do with the CEO of Virgin, just as they should do with the CEO of Rex. That makes sense to me. So we need to be really careful here that we don't make assumptions that in the ordinary course of engaging with stakeholders, something um, untoward has occurred. If, if it has, then appropriate punishments should be handed out. At the moment, though... Ben and I love appropriate punishments. At the moment, though, what we need to understand is that Qatar was asking for the largest increase it's ever had. The last government rejected that uh, request... This government has upheld that rejection. And actually, the last minister to give Qatar a significant increase was actually Anthony Albanese. I just want to make the point that Qatar would not be thinking about asking for more slots unless they thought they could turn a profit because that's how capitalism yeah, works. Everyone, this is my point, right? So there's clearly a market there. There's a market for Qatar that yeah. market have that they have their eyes on. And it, interestingly, Qantas are not are not fond. So yeah. what are Qantas doing? Like if there's a market there that Qatar want to maximise, is the corporate practice of Qantas just to sit on their fat ones and wait for the government to give them more money? Look, I think that's Australia, a- the laziest capitalist in the world. Ben and I have this discussion all the time. You will never get a, a better like critique of what capitalists could could do to do capitalism better than you get from people who've consumed a lot of Marxist theory. Because I'm just like, they're so lazy. There's a reason why there's not a lot of Australian CEOs. Uh, in American corporations or even British corporations or certainly not European corporations for that matter. Uh, and it's because of this uh, heavily reliant, heavy reliance on structural support, structural uh, uh, barriers to competition. Unearned opportunities and yeah. unearned privilege. It's a good way to put it. Look, there's some talk there might be a Senate inquiry into the decision around Qatar. Maybe there will be. If there is, I hope that it looks at the full uh, gamut. Can't we this. have a Senate inquiry into the aviation industry? I think that root and branch, and that's so maybe we can address things like labour hire and employment opportunities and regionalisation and actually servicing the needs of the economy. Maybe, oh, this is crazy. We could look at their role in the circular economy and work around things like reducing uh, emissions from aviation. Yeah. We could look at the whole thing. I think, and I think that's entirely much more appropriate. And you know what? If there are fines to be paid because of uh, deceitful, misleading behaviour, maybe we could, maybe we could take it out in Qantas stock. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be good? Then the taxpayer would actually get some of that value that it's already put in. Look, Van, we do need to move on because Qantas <laughs> isn't going anywhere, uh, ironically enough. But the economy is, the economy is growing slightly faster than economists had predicted. Uh, national accounts came out today, 6th of September. Uh, the initial immediate takeaway is that it was slightly stronger than expected. The March quarter was revised up to 2.4 from 2.3% growth. Uh, and the slowdown in June uh, was not as bad as economists expected. So it was expected that the June uh, quarter would be 1.8 and it was 2.1. Now, these are small numbers and what does it mean? You've got to remember, these are numbers of a trillion dollar economy. So the difference between 2.1% and 1.8% is the difference of 2.1% of a trillion dollars versus the difference of 1.8% of a trillion dollars. This means uh, that the end of June 2023, the end of the financial year, for the entire financial year, the Australian economy grew by 3.4%. So that's a pretty good outcome, uh, 3.4%. It means that our economy is growing faster than the economies of uh, Germany, the UK, France, Canada, and Italy. Those are five of the group of seven, uh, which are the seven biggest economies in the world. 
main contributors to economic growth, then you'll be pleased to know uh, services, 12.1% uh, growth, uh, and inbound travel services. Tourists are coming. I don't know if people have noticed more tourists, but you probably have because it's 18.5% more uh, in, in terms of economic activity, at least. There has been some reduction in savings rates. This is the cost of living crisis biting people. So it's dropped from about 3.6 to about 3.2%. People are eating into their savings. Hopefully, we'll start to see that uh, mitigate now that inflation is on the downward trend and has been for a while. But this is... This is good news. I'm not going to call it great news. It's better than expected news. Uh, and it does imply that the economic policies, the stabilizing policies, the policies of free TAFE, getting people into training, the policies of making medicines cheaper, uh, these all of these different levers that the government is pulling to try and mitigate some of the international supply chain issues making more things here in Australia, getting ourselves more energy self-sufficient through renewables is starting to have those impacts that we'd hoped, which is sustainable, ongoing growth, increasing wages, and of course, high levels of employment, because we at the moment have not seen a big spike in unemployment, which, of course, we know the high priests of the RBA continually say we're going to have to have in order to get inflation down. Like they actually enjoy it. Yeah, it's very weird. Interestingly enough, the RBA didn't increase interest rates on Tuesday, uh, which is just another indicator that actually all of these what's called fiscal policy levers, that's when government does stuff, that are being pulled, are having the desired impact, and that while there's been... A slight, uh, slight tick up from 35 to 3.7% unemployment, we're not going to see that kind of return to a 5, 6, 7% rate of unemployment in order to, you know, placate the gods of monetary policy. Uh, when we know, we know, we've just talked about it. The issue has been greedflation. I think the whole country understands that now. There's a backlash to that that's going on, and it's policy. It's time for policies that deal with that problem, and that's another reason to support the IR bill because, quite frankly, BHP and Qantas don't need multi-billion-dollar profits uh, at the expense of the workers uh, and the consumers. So, look, the economy is growing. Uh, it's not even. It's a bit... Um, Higgledy-piggledy. Higgledy-piggledy. You know, but there is some good news in there. It's better news than was expected. Uh, Of course, we are very exposed to external factors. China, what's going on there? That's a whole episode in of itself. Maybe I'll do a weekend wrap on that because there's a whole mess of things going on in China which impacts our economy, you know, what goes on in the United States, their economy is actually going really well. Bidenomics, baby. So we've hitched our wagon to a winner there. It's amazing what happens to economies when they're not run by fruitcakes. Speaking of the UK, that economy is tanking. Oh, yeah. So our wagon's not doing quite so well over that side. So, of course, all of these things, it's pluses and minuses. But overall, a good result Hopefully, better results to come. And obviously, the war in Ukraine. And I'd just like to say a big shout-out to our beautiful allies in Ukraine fighting the good fight. Did you know Ukrainians have retaken more than 50% of the territory that the Russians invaded? They are driving them back. The counteroffensive is working. It's all very exciting. Well, that is good news. It's really good news. It's really good news. And there's some more good news, Van, about solar glass. I love this piece of news. So solar glass is exactly what it says. It generates electricity through a solar electrical mechanism just through glass. So windows and doors and anything you can make glass out of, it can generate electricity. So so this is a story one of our listeners sent us, Daniel Conway. We love you, Daniel Conway. We love your happy environment story. Sends them to me regularly. Thank you so much, Daniel. Um, the So this is an ASX listener. So this is an Australian company uh, announced a breakthrough in the production 
of solar glass. We've talked about solar glass on the show before. So this new production methodology makes it 92% faster than previous methods. So, I mean, that's an extraordinarily uh, saving. And when you when you talk about manufacturing, the the a lot of the cost is the time, obviously machinery, labour, and the time it takes to make the thing and get it to market. That's why they like stealing wages from workers because it drives down their costs because they're trying to maximise return to shareholders. Exactly. So this Australian company was able to use its standard mass production lines uh, that it has in Singapore uh, and uh, through a Chinese manufacturer, uh, and it was able to reduce the fabrication time by 90%. Uh, Essentially, uh, that's on doing it in the standard way, essentially the overall process adds about five minutes to the standard production time for glass. Like that is extraordinary. So for an extra five minutes, instead of just a normal piece of glass. You can have an electricity generating piece of glass. Like guys, come on, that's amazing. That is amazing. I think it's absolutely amazing. So this is a uh, WA-based company. They intend to build an assembly line in WA to manufacture photovoltaic strips to be used in the clear glass solar windows and facades, Uh, and it's been tested. So uh, Murdoch University used three different types of – I'm going to name the company. We haven't received any consideration for this, but just to be clear, it's called Clearview. Uh, You can look up the research results that have been published apparently. They tested three different types of glass and they found that this worked consistently um, on vertically orientated windows. Vertically orientated windows, meaning the ones on the side of the building, which is traditionally where you put a window. Yeah, indeed. So, you know, like that's incredible. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, and this is the thing. We don't have to be despairing and hopeless about the environment. We just have to be active and we have to organise collectively, like in trade unions, to make the argument going, do you know what costs money? A coal mine. Do you know what makes money? Oh, solar glass. Isn't that an absolutely fantastic thing that should exist in favourable economic conditions? And this process apparently even uses less electricity to make the glass than you would otherwise use. This is brilliant news. This is is phenomenally good news. People can always send us happy environment stories. We live for them. I suffer from depression and I appreciate them on a fundamental existential level. Of course, we have so many supporters uh, now. It's just been mind-blowing. You can send us stories about whatever you like, really. Uh, We do love the environmental stories. We don't always uh, get every story up. As Daniel knows, he sends me many, but we do try and cover the topics that you, dear listeners, uh, send us. And of course, the podcast will always be free to download, always free to listen to, and we constantly try and grow our audience. We have consistently grown over the nearly three years now that we've been running this podcast. Three years, 149 episodes, more than a million downloads. And it's because people like, share, they comment, they share. You have the, to give me my party. With the with their friends, fan, they talk about it at work, <laughs> you know, and there are people who do go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday and they make a financial contribution that helps us get the podcast into more ears and onto more devices so that the message gets to more people. You can make a one-off contribution, which we love. You can make a buck a week contribution. It's only a buck a week, 10 bucks a month to be an Extend the Reach supporter or 20 bucks a month to be Cadre supporter. And of course, we will email you every episode. We'll send you some links. And of course, Van reads out our Cadre and Extend the Reach supporters. Ben, before I do that, to give me the energy, tell me how cute the dog is. He's very cute. He is so cute. He's asleep on my leg. Okay, our Cadre are Mega Ichisaurus, Matrizee, Shamila Lachal, Mzdian, Weird, Joe Lockery, Steph, Karina Bali, at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, and Common, at Ross Kenner, 888, Bronwyn Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning, Fulong, Men. Matthew Hadley, Colm Kelly, 
Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Geet Yeti, Annie Balden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Brewers, Gabe, Kramer, Stephen, Aiken, Trish, Corey, Greg, Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Bronwyn, Punch Trunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tsui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, No Relation, Glenn Robbie, Breast Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cutright, Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, Billy Three McCabe, Kerry Nash 20, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Laura Nash and Banjo, Hair Guys, Narunga Man, Jason Paris, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Louise Watson at Red, White and Blue Lou. And our extended reach supporters are Murray Budwell, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Mikey Mark, Akvikam Bit, Aiden Valente, Mizritsa at Carradale 68, Frank Nahouse, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapeno, Richard Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur Pauline, Bate, Shane Horsfall, Helen, Murray, Buzzard 62, Janet McCallman, Jeremy Moe, Rosie Elliott, Lara, Robert Notfield 1, Michael Wiles, Sanj Kelly, Dorena, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Tri Dragon, Daniel, at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennel, Anna Uran, Melanie Denning, Jody A. Not on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope S. Wood, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beckham Lola, Richard Graver, Someone Veda, W. Nandita Hannum, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Tracy Lucas, Andy Heinen, at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah Elian and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Pedro C., Linda Sam Hadid, Kip Addison, Lizette Twistle, Bunker Basher, Caddy Wood, at The Real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B., Renee McGee, Kim Delahaye, and someone. Congratulations, sir. Everyone who supports the podcast, it's hard to, uh, it's hard for us to even fathom how the two of us with Germanicus uh, in our study or in our shed or in different hotel rooms across the country have managed to continue to have such a successful podcast. But it's because of you, it's because of everyone who listens, shares, likes, and contributes and helps us grow this audience. We are independent, we are not auspiced by any major media organization uh, and yet somehow or another we continue to be uh, a a force in both are we in the top 600 news podcasts in the world we we did we were the other day uh and we are of course in regularly in the top 40 news podcasts in australia regularly in the top 10 podcasts uh for politics uh, in australia and you know top 600 in the world i'm in the world's a big place ben <laughs> i know i know look Van, that's all we're going to talk about today. Of course, you can join me for the weekend wrap on Sunday, where, as one colleague and comrade of mine recently put, it's Ben's rant half an hour on a Sunday afternoon, which they like to listen to while they do their dishes. So until then, Vanny, love you very much. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Say goodbye, Jim. Oh, he's up. He's up now. Bye. Bye.